The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. We're going to look at, again, this back half of the chapter as he instructs us, after you have suffered a while, he says, make you perfect in verse 10. I'm going to mature you. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to strengthen you. And I'm going to settle you, but in order for this to happen, you have to suffer. You have to be willing and submitted and trusting the Lord that even during suffering, there's a purpose. And and that's been the theme throughout as we've looked at the whole book together as a body. This has been the theme of, of this, that when we suffer for doing well, when we suffer for righteousness sake, uh, we can even be happy. We can be satisfied. We can be thankful. Um, Christian persecution and Christian suffering is not new, but it appears to be, at least to us from our perspective, intensifying throughout the world. According to a a recent article that is worth quoting, I I, I think, um, uh, David Alton said this, there was a crossbench peer who campaigns on religious freedom and some assessments claim that as many as 200 million Christians in over 60 countries around the world face some degree of restriction, discrimination, or outright persecution. That's about one in 10 of the 2.2 billion Christians that are in the world. And whatever the real figures, the scale truly is enormous when you think about it. From Syria, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, to North Korea, China, Vietnam, Laos, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Malaysia, Burma, Cuba, Colombia, and Mexico, to Nigeria and Sudan, Christians face serious violations of religious freedom. Persecution ranges in these countries from murder and rape and torture to repressive laws, discrimination, and social exclusion. But not all Christian suffering is to the degree that we just mentioned in that article, And it was not that bad for Peter's first readers uh, that read this letter. As a matter of fact, uh, they had it quite good, and they were not enduring a lot of the suffering and persecution that some Christians in other countries were. And these believers in first century Asia Minor didn't uh, face a universal state-sponsored systematic persecution, uh, though within a few years they would. And uh, there, were a, a, there were a minority of social outcasts who were ridiculed and discriminated against simply because they were Christians. And they didn't face losing their lives day by day, but they did face losing out on maybe rights and privileges every day. And the suffering we're likely to face today as Christians in the West is, is more like what I believe these original readers faced than what Christians today in the Middle East are now facing But wherever we are in the spectrum of righteous suffering, Peter's letter encourages all of us to endure unjust suffering faithfully and hopefully. He tells us to have hope through it. He tells us to be faithful through it, no matter what degree of suffering we're facing, no matter uh, 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 what we lose on a daily basis for, for living as a believer, for enduring as a Christian. And as Christians, we're called to endure this suffering with joy. And the Bible tells us that that's God's will for us, entrusting ourselves to his care under his mighty hand because the road marked with righteous suffering is the road that ultimately, he reminds us, leads where? It leads to glory. It leads to glorification. It leads to a likeness with Jesus Christ. And that's the first reminder today that I want to point to is that humility leads to exaltation. What does he tell us? He says, humble yourselves in verse 6. Therefore, because of these things that we've understood in the scriptures, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may what? Exalt you in due time. There's an exaltation that's coming even though we may be facing difficulty, even though we may be facing oppression, even though we may be facing persecution, even though we may be suffering, humility ultimately leads to exaltation. Peter instructs structures really his argument 
at the end of this letter in a way that kind of underlines the most important truth that he wants to leave in our minds as we've looked at this book together. And the structure looks something like this. As you look at verse 6, he says, Humble yourself so God may exalt you. Verse 7, he says, Cast all your, your worries, all your frets, all your fears, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How many have fear, anxiety, frets, worries? He says, cast all those things on him because he truly cares for you. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful because of the devil in verse number 8, because we have an enemy. He tells us in verse 9, to resist him, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by other believers, by the brotherhood. And then in verse 10, he says, after you've suffered a little while, God himself will restore you. And verses 6 and 10 are where the emphasis should fall. The road marked with Christian suffering, humility or humiliation, is the road that leads to glory or exaltation. This is, verse 12, the true grace of God. It's God's grace that we would ever be exalted, that we would ever be glorified. Who, Who among us deserves exaltation? Who among us deserves to be lifted, deserves to be raised, deserves to be brought to the level that our Savior Jesus Christ is? But the Bible says that we're heirs and joint heirs with Jesus, that we we experience the inheritance and it's promised to us the inheritance that we have truly today in Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me today. Because my life is not tied to this life, my life is tied to His life. And his life's eternal, never perishes, never fades away, and everlasting, never losing power, never losing its its, uh, value, its its determination, its its power. And Peter learned this lesson from our Lord Jesus who taught him that many who are first will be last and the last will be first. That we need to learn to humble ourselves. That we need to trust God, put ourselves in his hand and under his hand in humility. And we can rest assured that we can endure humiliation and suffering, reminding ourselves that he humbled himself. The Bible says he made himself of no reputation. He took on himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men, that he became, subjected himself, obedient to death, even the humiliation humiliation and and the kind of death that he died on the cross. And then he tells us to let this mind be in us, to clothe ourselves with this same humility. And Peter knew that when Christ would be revealed, there would be a great reversal. Those that are last in this world, that are trodden in this world, that are persecuted in this world, that are subjugated to suffering in this world, will one day be first in the kingdom of God. That those who suffer for a while here, for the temporary life that we have here, will stand before God and hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then I want to remind us today that there is no safer place than in God's hands. There is no safer place than in God's hands. In 1 Peter 5, 5, again, Peter called the church to clothe ourselves. He says, all of you, with humility. Notice he doesn't just say humility in a sense of like uh, pious humility that we say, oh, we're humble before God. But he says, humble yourselves to each other. Be humble among yourselves. Humble yourselves to one another. He says, all of you, be humble to each other. It's easy to say we're humble before God where nobody can see. It's hard to humble yourself before someone else to take last place, to to, to put yourself in a position where you're able to serve other people expecting nothing in return, to be humble, to, to give up, if you would, the right to be recognized, to not do things in service to God expecting some kind of praise. Expecting somebody to, to, to say something good to you because you've served. As a matter of fact, He's saying this humility is going to be shown in the sense that when you do good, people will speak ill of you. That when they do speak ill of you, your father would be glorified. That's true humility. And he's saying, Peter's urging Christians, humble yourselves, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Some of us, we would say, well, when's that time coming? When's, that, when's the proper time? I'm tired of being, have to be humble or uh, in humiliation. We're to embrace the suffering God wills for us because we know that the same God also wills our exaltation. He says this, He will exalt you. It's His will to exalt us. That's, that's an astounding thought today, that it is God's will to exalt us. I mean, I believe today that there, there should be none of us that have an attitude that we don't want to exalt Him. How many sometimes we sing, but we don't exalt Him? You know, we gather, but we don't exalt Him. Today's not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about the things I want, or the things I want to get out of this service, or get out of this gathering. It's not about what you want. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that should be exalted in the gathering today. By the way, there's very little that needs to happen in the gathering for that to take place. You know, sometimes all the things we do when we gather are more about us than they are about Him. More about making me comfortable, more about my experience, more about how I want to feel, more about my emotions and, and my burdens. And while it's true that God does meet us where we are and God wants to minister to us in our needs, we've come together for the purpose of glorifying Him because He's worthy to receive all blessing and honor and glory. And it's about Jesus today. It's about Him. And it's hard for us to exist in an atmosphere, because I would s- submit to you that the Christian atmosphere is the only one where it's not about us. Every other experience is about us, isn't it? We go to a restaurant, it's about our experience. We go to a store, it's about our experience. You know, you ever read uh, reviews? <laughs> the reviews are always very kind, aren't they? Usually the people that leave reviews are the people you don't want to leave a review. When you have a good experience, sometimes we just say, well, that was great. We don't, we don't comment on that. When we get really passionate is when we get let down. Well, I'm going to go and leave a comment, leave a review. You know, uh, it's even a thing now where people review churches. You ever read Google reviews? I mean, it, and it's, it's amazing when you, when you uh, and I would encourage you to do that. I think by and large, ours are pretty positive. But uh, I, I would say, you know, uh, I'm not really today that concerned about how you're going to review my sermon. I'm just being honest. And, and that's who we are. I mean, we're critics. Whenever we go to entertainments or shows or movies or whatever, it's all about our experience. It's all about how it made us feel. And even today in the Christian experience, in the Christian world, the evangelical world, people are like, oh, I want a, I want a message like this, or I want a, a worship experience like this, and I want, a, I want to feel a certain way. And we've got to be careful, especially around this season, where we get all the feels with Christmas and the decorations and all the things, and it becomes about us, and it's not even about Him. Because it's just our traditions. It's just our human experience. But today is supposed to be, and and by the way, in the the life of a Christian, every day is supposed to be about Jesus. To live under His hand is a safe place to be. We can humbly embrace the suffering that comes from God's hand because we stand under the protection of His mighty hand. You think about that. I, I love that God says, humble yourself under His mighty hand. In other words, there's nothing that can harm you under His hand unless he allows suffering to come while you're under his hand. And if he allows it, then we must embrace that it's good for us. That we can know all things work together for good because we love God. Because we love God, it means we trust God. When we're under his hand, boy, we can trust him. Because his hand is mighty. How many believe his hand is mighty to save? Boy, he's able to save us to the uttermost to come to him. And he, his, how many would think of, when you think of the hand of God, you think of Jesus' words that when you're in the hand of God, nothing can what? Pluck you out of his hand. It's with that same thought that Paul reiterates about the love of Jesus Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad today that your salvation is not tied to your performance? Oh boy. What, what a sad condition when Christians think that, You know, uh, God is looking to somehow take away what He gave to us. God, in His mercy and His grace, delivers to us unmerited favor because of Jesus, and then He doesn't ever take it away from us because 
He doesn't give it to us because we're good. It was in while that we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. That Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. We were at enmity with God, forever separated with God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And you hath he quickened, the Bible says. He took us who were dead and made us alive again by his spirit. We were born of God as little children, newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the word that what? We may grow thereby. Boy, God gave us a new life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Boy, we have received salvation because of his mighty hand. How many have been delivered from so many things because of his mighty hand. Oh man, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue should confess what that he is Lord. You know, that sovereign controller over all things. What, what kind of man, the disciple says, is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Everything in this earth, boy, obeys him, his voice. And it's his mighty hand, boy, that he delivers us. You think of those Israelites as, as they thought about the mighty hand of God. It was the mighty hand of God that parted that Red Sea, wasn't it? It didn't have anything to do with Moses' staff. It just had to do with Moses' submission. His submission to the authority of God brought the power of God and brought the people of God to see the mighty hand of God. Boy, that's what, that's what we need to experience today. Not, not some individual, in a sense of some spiritual leader with, with the fullness of the power of God uh, displaying that power to us, but rather that we would see that the fullness of the power of God can reside in all of us because we've received of Him His Spirit, the same Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. And boy, that power is in us. And God wants, to, wants us all to embrace it from His mighty hand, He can deliver us from anything. I don't know what you're facing today, but God can deliver you from it. And, and here's the thing. We should have the same attitude that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. If our God doesn't deliver us, we're still going to obey Him. If He doesn't deliver us, because He doesn't always, does He? He doesn't always, because everything that we perceive to us to be, be bad for us isn't always bad for us. Sometimes God allows us to go through things because He knows we need to go through those things. You know why? Because He's a good Father. He doesn't remove our suffering just because, because we cry out. But I'm glad that when we cry out, He still cares. He cares for us in the midst of our suffering. The world would say, everything that happens to me that it's against my will is bad. You ever hear the world? Boy, if it's not what I want, then it's bad. It's negative. Try to withstand somebody's will. See the response that you get. Boy, we're, we're like impetuous toddlers, aren't we? we? We have to always have things our way. And those that don't know Christ, boy, they're only living for their will. They're not living for the will of God. As believers, we're supposed to be submitted to the will of God. Nevertheless, as Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love to recite the prayers, but I wonder if we believe the words that we pray. You know, what does it mean to live with an utter dependence? What does it mean to live, rather, as humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand? Well, to humble ourselves under His mighty hand means to live with utter dependence on His grace and mercy. You know, even in this life, if you suffer, even for doing well, you can receive it as God's grace and mercy. How many know today that you deserve a lot worse than what you're going through? How many can embrace today the truth that even if you're suffering right now, if you're suffering relationally, you're suffering physically, you're suffering emotionally, you're suffering, suffering no, no matter what kind of suffering you're facing, in the end, the worst that can happen to us is what? Our lives are gone, we die, and then where are we? Forever with Him. Death is a doorway to everlasting life. That even death, in God's eyes, blessed, is a death of what? Saints in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because we think 
that death is the end. The world says, you've got to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow it's over. You're, you're going to die. I mean, there, there, there may not be another moment, another day. Many of them even reject the thought that we even live beyond our own selves, that everything that we live, what a horrible life to live, to think that everything is tied to this miserable life. I know that we have happy times, and, and, and I would say, you know, a lot of people in this world, the anthem of this world is when, when we get what we want and when we achieve what we want, when we, when we get success in a sense of worldly success, we say, well, life, what do we say? Life is good. As Christians, again, we, we mistakenly send the message to other people that we're blessed when we receive material things. And, and I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us with material things. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. But God does not promise to believers health and wealth. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. God, God's not telling believers that if you're blessed, you're healthy and you're wealthy. As a matter of fact, there are many believers today that will never experience health or wealth. And they are most blessed. As a matter of fact, what does Hebrews tell us about those that are killed, martyred, sawn asunder, and burned for following Jesus, who only in life experience suffering as believers, that the world is not even worthy of them, that they are more blessed? Boy, we think it's more blessed to give than to receive, except for when we have to give. We think, well, give. Give is just, you know, giving up my extra, giving up my addition, giving up the things that I don't need and can easily discard. No, 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 giving is often giving everything that you have. Jesus often characterized and illustrated to us what true giving is. Aren't you glad that God didn't just give us the easily discarded? He gave us his perfect son. Because he loved us, he gave us everything. He gave us his own life. To live under God's mighty hand is to live with a utter dependence on His grace and mercy. I'll be honest today, I don't know that I'm there. How about you? Utter dependence on His grace and mercy? I'd like to get closer today. I want to be realistic. How many, at sometimes at the end of a message or something similar, presentation of God's word like this. You say, oh, I want to surrender to this. I want to do this. But how many know, boy, in your flesh there's no good thing. It is hard to live utterly dependent on the mercy and grace of God. But I would submit to you that it's possible because he's commanding us to do it. As we face unjust suffering, it's easy to be afraid. We may worry about our family, our job, our society, our standing in society, even our health and life. And before these fears overwhelm us, we remind ourselves in verse number seven that as this fear rushes in, living under the mighty hand of God, living utterly dependent on his mercy and grace, he says this, cast your care on him. Isn't it more powerful in its context? God's not just saying, oh, oh, you're not feeling good today. Cast your care on him. No, he's saying when the fear creeps in, this idea of living in utter dependence on the mercy of grace of God. That, how, many, how many of you balk at that? You, you feel the, your, your flesh in you balking at that. Well, what does that mean? And how much am I going to have to give up? And what is this going to cost me? And does this just mean I'm going to end? I mean, it's, it's the fear that entered into that rich young ruler when Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Ooh, I, I don't know if I can live like that. You know, I mean, I've obeyed all the laws. I, I've done all the righteous deeds. I've, I've done all the actions. Can't I just get an attaboy, Jesus? I mean, can, can't you just say, oh, you've done a good job, and, you know, can't I just kind of... No, no, no. Go and take that which is most precious to you, the thing that is keeping you from living by faith, and get rid of it. And live by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. If we're going to live under his mighty hand, we have to trust him completely. Utterly dependent on his grace and his mercy. Boy, all the things that we're in control of 
we start to fear because we lose control. You know, submission to the Lord is giving up control. How many, how many have learned as a believer that your control is an illusion? You're never really under control. We can boast about tomorrow. We can brag about how good things are going to be in our life. We can set ourselves up for success. How many know that it just takes a moment and everything can be gone? But we can cast our fears on Him. This anxiety that creeps in because living by faith is not an easy life to live. Why would we not humble ourselves under His mighty hand? What else or who else would we depend on? Remember when Jesus looked at His disciples as the multitude as Jesus taught hard things like this to them, they walked away from Him? And the Bible says this, they walk with Him no more. They went out from him because they were not all of him. For had they been of him, they would have continued with him. And the reason why they didn't continue with him is because they had something and lost it. The reason was is they never had it. Because while things were good, while the healings were given, while the prosperity, if you would, while the handouts were there, the crowd, the multitude. But when Jesus started talking about carrying crosses, people said, nah, I don't want to carry a cross. We got... The Messiah, we, we want you to I mean, bring us back to the days of David. Let us rule over other people. Let's be the nation that is the greatest country in the world. Let's be the Christian nation that, that you know, everybody else looks up to and that we have control over it. And we can, everybody looks at us and says, we're so blessed because we're the most powerful and we're, we have the strongest military and we have the greatest government and we have the, we have the most prosperity and we have the most freedom. Sound familiar? Oh, we'll follow God then. What about if you lose it all? What about if the path to following Jesus means learning to live in a society that is no longer a nation that's following Christ? Where it costs you. Where you're no longer the greatest in the world. Where persecution may come because you live according to the word of God. Where you have to be able to believe things that are unpopular in culture and society and you have to embrace those things not because of politics but because of conviction and a, and a faith in Jesus. And when that multitude walked away, Jesus turned to Peter who he used to write this text. And what did he say? Peter, you're going to go away too? What did Peter say? Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Boy, that's us. We, we, should, we shouldn't be looking to follow anything else. We shouldn't let anything else replace our faith in him, our utter dependence on him. In that moment, Peter got it. But he didn't always get it, did it? Because at the fireside, when they said, oh, you're one of those believers. Oh, no, 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 I'm not. When it cost him, when it was put to the test. See, sometimes in the worship service, all oh, to Jesus I surrender. But then life hits. I don't know if I'm going to go to church anymore. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to serve anymore. I don't know if I'm going to give anymore. I don't, I don't know if I can. Oh boy, I just I don't have anything, you know, left myself. You know, I I can't do this. I mean, it's, it's just it's too hard. And they walk away. What else or who else could we depend on but Him? He is faithful. We can trust that He will guide us and protect us by His mighty hand even as we face suffering. We can also trust God to fulfill His promises for our future blessing. In verse 10, Peter once again emphasizes this important truth. After you have suffered a little while. That's important for us to embrace. Because what is your life? just here and gone. How many are, are, are understanding the brevity of life more and more today? It's just fragile. It's just here and then it's gone. It's a vapor. How are you going to live it? You just have moments. You just have moments. How many know that you don't have as long as you think you do? Boy, the flesh lies to us. Oh, you're eternal. You're going to live forever. Yeah, you're never going to get old. I mean, you're always going to, you know, you're always... 
we're, we're just here and then we're gone. How are we going to live in these moments that God has allotted to us? Sometimes when we're suffering, you ever, you ever go through something painful? What is seconds feels like eternity, doesn't it? Because pain lies to us. It tells us as we go through suffering that we're going to endure this forever. And God says, no, no, no. Embrace the truth that you're only going to suffer for a little while. But you can trust God even in that suffering because you're not going to suffer forever. And this suffering is going to ultimately lead to exaltation, to victory. As a matter of fact, he says, after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace. Boy, what, what a terms. What, sometimes, how many of you read this and sometimes you overlook these things? As you're, oh, of course he's the God of all grace. No, no, he's the God of all grace. Boy, this is a God that just continually, continually, continually gives us his favor on no merit on our part. No worthiness on our part. He says, this God of all grace will what? He's going to help you to mature. He's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to establish, establish you. Um, the prosperity gospel reads this into now. But Peter's not even talking about now. He's talking about future eternal glorification. We have to be careful because the treasures we have that are hidden in Jesus Christ are not now. They're then. I understand that, you know, we have a lot and we, we consider ourselves to be blessed. But this is not God saying your life is going to be easy. You're going to be established. You're going to be, you know, because you're, you're, I think sometimes we think, okay, how long, and this is what we think sometimes, how long do I have to attend church, you know, read my Bible, pray, be faithful, you know, sign up for an area of service before I start, you know, getting up that ladder, you know, to where I've, I'm strong and settled and I'm successful and I'm, you know, influential and friend, that's, that's not what he's talking about. There's no ladder to climb here. There, there, there's, there is no, I mean, everything's upside down in this kingdom. If you're going up in this world, you're going down in his kingdom. I, I mean, everything is reverse. The way to exaltation in the kingdom of God is humility now. It's surrender now. It's submission now. It's embracing suffering now. It's enduring now. And he says we can endure for a little while because we've humbled ourselves under God's mighty hand. Don't forget it's his mighty hand. We can endure for a little while because God cares for us. We can endure for a little while because he will sustain us and lead us through this present suffering to our eternal glory. And if you're not convinced yet, that humiliation leads to exaltation. Just listen to Peter as he concludes his letter. With the four verbs that, through similar, though similar in meaning, really crescendo to a dramatic climax. It's almost like the final part of a spectacular fireworks display. Uh, um, and, he, and he's saying, boom, 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 one after the other. After we've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will, will strengthen you, will mature you, will establish you, will, will settle you. It almost, they almost mean the same things, but he's trying to hit home this point. Because God's going to do that. It says he, he will himself do this. God himself will strengthen and fortify believers so that they endure to the end. I like how J. Ramsey Michaels puts it. He says this, this benediction turns out to be a promise of victory or vindication. And just as the impressive finale of a fireworks display leads to awe, so... Also, ought the glorious truth of God's true grace lead us to awe. It should lead us to say what they said in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the response. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying this, 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 this display, this, this, this promise just leads the church to say this. To him. Be glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> you know, Pastor, I'm, <laughs> it's, I'm saying it quietly inside, you know. <clears throat> I'm not saying we all have to have the same personality. But we do all need to submit and surrender to what he's saying here, and it should bring joy to us. 
We're called to endure suffering as a church in order to display His gracious rule on the earth as we entrust ourselves to God. How many glad you used to live for the devil? He promised you, just like politicians do, give you everything you want. Oh, I'll give you the world. I'll give you everything you want. You're going to be happy and you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be, oh, you're just going to be so satisfied and I'll give you everything just like when he took Jesus up on the mountain. What does our ruler tell us? The truth. It's not going to be easy. You're going to go through hardship. You're going to suffer for a little while. But it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And you can trust me through it. And we'll get through the hard times together. And I'm not leaving you alone. I love what he's saying later on. This, this little signature at the end, he's telling the church, you're not alone. I've given you the brothers and sisters in Christ. Boy, they wish you well, and they're praying for you, and I'm with you, and we're with each other, and you're not alone through this. Boy, I, I hurt for people who think it, the time is done to gather with the church. You know why? Because they're alone. I mean, I know they have Jesus, but you know what? The great reminder of our, our perseverance together is the perseverance of all the saints. I need you today. Because some of you are going through some dark times right now. And I'm looking at you and saying, well, I hope when I go through that, that I can stay faithful. I can keep following Jesus. That I won't quit. Well, that's why when we see someone down, boy, oh, we, we've got to stop this church, we, we kick people when they're down, we shoot them when they're wounded oh let me just if your brother or sister put them out of their misery, stop your ministry are you with me? you know we, we ought to have a ministry of encouraging each other how many find yourself in your flesh sometimes being really nitpicky how many feel that oh no, none of us you know it's all the people that didn't show up to church today. All the people on the live stream. We're really suffering. We drove here today in our luxury vehicles. We get really nitpicky, don't we? And we start picking at each other. And then we start doing the work of the devil with each other. Because what does he do? He devours. He divides. He steals. He kills. He destroys. That's why he tells us how we should wait. Peter already warned us that because the end is at hand, we're to keep our heads about us, think soberly. Now he reminds us in verse 8, once again, to think soberly. You still with me? We're almost done. Take a deep breath. Some of you are hoping I'm going to get tired before I still got a lot of energy. I had a good sleep last night. This time he adds that we're to be watchful. Sobriety and alertness are required because your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. You know what an adversary is? It's literally the person who brings a charge against someone. It's an accuser. That's what an adversary is. Well, the Bible's pretty clear that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's a prosecutor. I'd be glad that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. In other words, every time the accuser comes, you don't have to defend yourself because you have an advocate. Fully covered, you don't have to pay for. Jesus stands on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. And he says, all your charges 
are dropped. It doesn't matter what you were. It's not even mattering today what you've done. Although we should continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. But he's saying this, when that adversary comes, boy, we have an advocate. And he's just. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not that we get saved over and over again, that we get righteous over and over again, that we get the Spirit over and over again. It's a continual experience in our relationship with God that as we falter, as we fail, how many today, like me, you had to do this, God, I'm stupid. Oh, I'm such a fool. You ever talk like that? I I did today. Lord, I'm such a fool. I'm so stupid. God, forgive me. Help me to be surrendered, submitted to you. Thank you that when I fall, you're there to pick me up. Thank you that you cleanse me. Thank you when that accuser creeps in and starts whispering in my ear, you vindicate me, that I can lean on you, that I can be sober. Listen, church, Because when you're hurting and when you're suffering, you are vulnerable. That's literally what he's saying to you. You are most vulnerable in your times of your greatest pain and weakness, and that's when the adversary is looking to devour you. You ever watch predatory animals like lions hunt? It's it's an amazing thing. But who do they always go for? The wounded, the sick, the divided, the wandering. And that's why he gives us this illustration. Be sober-minded, be vigilant as you suffer. As you suffer while you follow Jesus, be sober-minded, be vigilant, because the devil is trying to devour you. He wants to make your life of no effect. And sadly, when it comes to the devil, Christians have either been obsessive or dismissive. I believe it's the two extremes we see today when it comes to the devil. How many see the obsessiveness of people who like to draw attention to themselves when they talk about delivering people from the devil all the time? Can, can I help you for, t- for today for a moment? Everything's not the devil. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. And by the way, he's not always messing with you. How many know that in this world you suffer because this is a fallen world? We get sick. Christians get sick. Good people get sick. And it doesn't mean that they're possessed or oppressed by the devil. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But sometimes we're like the disciples. Who sinned? Was it his father? Was it his mother? That he was born blind. And what does Jesus say? This has nothing to do with the sin. This is so that God's glory can be made manifest. Why? Because God even gets glory in our weaknesses. And he doesn't always heal us. This idea that everybody gets healed and everybody gets this. I mean, sometimes we sound like, oh, for when you're getting a car and you're getting a car and you're getting healed and you're getting, I mean, just like everybody's getting something. Like, give me a break today. Some people, they go to church and that's their experience. Everybody's getting something. Well, we have Jesus. What else do we need? I like what C.S. Lewis said. I believe he put it, put it brilliantly, uh, brilliantly about these two extremes. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall up about with devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or a magician with the same delight. Some people are like Christian magicians doing all these magic tricks. And some people are just materialists who don't believe that there's an enemy. And I tell you, the devil is real. We should be ready for his attacks, but our Lord has confronted him and defeated him once for all. And he who is in us is greater than he who prowls around us. 
The devil's a real foe, but he's a defeated foe. He's a real threat, but he's a limited threat. He's on a leash, and he can only do what God permits him to do. And God has granted us the grace to do what he says to do next. Resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. That's what he says in verse 9. This is the same suffering we're all going through. Alertness, sobriety, provoke an active response to the devil. We're to be constantly on the lookout for his crafty ways so we can resist him over and over and over again. You know why? Because there's something about him that we need to understand. He doesn't quit. He is persistent. And even though he's a defeated foe, He's not, he's not going laying down. He's going to continue to persist, persist, and so we must continue to resist. Resistance is not something you do once. Resistance is something you continually do over and over again. And I would submit to the believer, it's something. Submission is a moment-by-moment moment experience with God. Resistance is our moment-by-moment moment experience with the flesh and the devil. And we must both submit and resist. It's our two-part calling. We resist the devil and his deceptions as we remain steadfast in our trust of God and the gospel. And when we suffer, the devil may tempt us to believe God no longer cares for us, that he's abandoned us. By the way, the temptation is the same as it was in the Garden of Eden. You can't trust God, but you can. You can remain steadfast in faith, entrusting yourselves under his mighty hand, reminding ourselves of God's gracious care. And when we suffer, the devil may tempt us to think that life is better for everyone else. That if we only abandon Christ, our suffering will be relieved. But we remain steadfast in our faith, knowing that our suffering is not unique to us, but that all Christians everywhere face similar suffering. And that God is at work in all of us and in all of our suffering to strengthen our faith, to perfect our character in order that we may obtain our imperishable inheritance. So what is he saying to us? Lastly, stand firm. Stand firm. The 17th century English Puritan Richard Baxter shared a similar perspective in relation to preaching. And these words haunt me and convict me. He says, I preached as never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. Again, I say I'm haunted by Baxter's words because I often ask myself the question, do I preach every sermon as a dying man to dying men? Do I preach every sermon as if it were my last? You know, I, I think this kind of thought was what was on Peter's head as he brought his letter to a close. On the basis of all he shared with his readers throughout this letter, Peter now preaches as a dying man to dying men. He wants us to make sure they know how to stand firm on the basis of the grace of God toward them in Christ and resist the devil who seeks to destroy their faith. So he begins to beg them by telling them to stand firm, verse 12, in the true grace of God. So what is the true grace of God? It's the promised exaltation that comes through present suffering. Did you get that? It's the promised exaltation that comes through present suffering. It's the guarantee of a future inheritance for all the, those that have been born again by His grace and born along by His kindness. And this has been Peter's point all along. It's the reason he sent Silvanius, a faithful brother, as he regards him with this letter, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And what does he say? As he says, Sylvanius brings this letter. Peter's readers are to what? Stand firm. But you do not stand alone. 
she's at Babylon, who is what? Also, those that are chosen in Jesus, the church of God, they're sending you greetings, and so does Mark, his son, Marcus, in verse 13. All of God's church who are in exile throughout the world stand with the chosen Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. That's who who he introduced the letter to. And he's saying to them, you're standing firm, but you're not standing alone. Peter's concerned that in the face of unjust suffering, his readers will stand firm in God's grace and remain in and display God's love. And this is what Peter wishes to them. And this is reflected in the way he closes his letter. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Wish on one another peace. And we stand firm in the true grace of God as we suffer simply because we're Christians. Church, we stand firm knowing that while the world may take everything away from us, it cannot take our glorious identity or our imperishable future because we are elect exiles set apart by the Holy Spirit for the salvation accomplished by Christ. And now we're on our way home, chapter 1. We stand firm knowing that even though the world may kill us, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. We stand firm knowing that God does not waste our suffering. He intends for it to purify our faith in order that we may obtain our future salvation when Christ is revealed. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We stand firm knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ traveled the road marked with righteous suffering and blazed the path for us to follow, chapter 2. We stand firm knowing that if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed, chapter 3, and will be exalted to glory as Christ was. Chapter 4, we stand firm knowing that as we share in Christ's suffering, we are proven to be Christians. Chapter 5, we stand firm by humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that he will exalt us in his timing. We, you, can and must stand firm in the true grace of God until we breathe no more or until Christ is revealed. May it be so. And we say as Peter closes, If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.